the first time I ever went to Get Air, which is a trampoline park in Green Bay, they have one of those swinging ladders, which is really narrow at the base and at the other end, and then it gets wider in the middle, and the goal is to walk across the ladder without it throwing you off or without it turning over. And I watched in amazement as a little six-year-old girl just sped right up the ladder and then down. And I thought, I'm going to imitate what she did. And so I got on the ladder, and I made it to the second rung. And then I was in the foam pit, just fell completely. And I got out of the foam pit, and then I watched this entire line of kids, and, and just three or four of them in a row, all about six to eight years old, just were able to climb this ladder without any problem whatsoever. And I was watching their technique and they kept everything centered, and I said, all right, that's what I'm going to emulate. I'm going to emulate their approach, and I'm going to be able to do this. And I'm happy to report that after I did that, the second time I tried it, I made it to the fourth rung of the ladder, and then the ladder was upside down, but I refused to let go because I just kept telling myself, if they can do it, if the six-year-olds can do it, I can do it. And so I'm on the underside of the ladder now, and I climb up one more rung, and then I was defeated, and I was in the foam pit because I wasn't able to do it. And sometimes in life, we, we look at things, and we try to imitate them, we try to emulate them. And sometimes that works out for us. But sometimes in life, we look at something and we just can't do it. Now, sometimes we are able to do it. I was, a couple weeks ago, I, I went to the, the Packers-Lions game, as I shared with you last week. And on the way in, I'm normally not car decal guy. That's just normally not me. I don't have a problem with anybody that has them. But that's normally not me. But... On the way to the Packer game, on as we were getting ready to pull into our, our parking spot, I saw this car next to us in traffic, and it was calling to me. On, on their back windshield, they had a decal of the 1980s wrestler Hulk Hogan, and he was laying down. And then I looked up, and on their rear windshield wiper, they had a decal of 1980s wrestler Randy Macho Man Savage, which means that every time that their windshield wiper is on in the back, it looks like Randy Savage is coming off the top rope, giving Hulk Hogan the elbow drop. Now, if you did not watch wrestling in the 80s, that means nothing to you. I, however, was a child in the 80s who grew up on Hulkamania and, and Randy Macho Man Savage and some of their legendary feuds and partnership and so I did what I had to do, and I rolled down the window to our car, and I got the attention of the other car, and they're looking at me kind of crazy, and they rolled down their window, and I said, Ooh, yeah, Randy Macho Man Savage. And then we started doing the Randy Savage voice to each other, and we bonded, and, and then we sped away, and it didn't last nearly as long as it should have. And I just, I was really sad that my family wasn't with me because my kids would have been really embarrassed, but they would have loved it. And my wife would have just been really embarrassed and not loved it, which would have made me and the kids love it even more. This summer when we were on vacation, I, I might have told you we were, we, 
we came up to a security guard, and before we had to talk to him, my kids from the back seat said, hey, Dad, do the Macho Man voice. And Brooke said, don't you dare, which left me only with one choice. And so I rolled down the window and had a minute conversation with the security guard in the Macho Man voice, and my wife was so embarrassed, and the boys were so embarrassed but loved it, and they were really excited. So I couldn't emulate a little girl walking up a ladder at the trampoline park, but Macho Man's voice, I, I do all right. I do, and the other guy, you know, that we were imitating the voice together. What we're going to talk about today as we continue our look at the early church and it's spreading through the book of Acts, is we're going to see today that God is doing some incredible, supernatural, miraculous things. And some people try to imitate that. But the problem is, all they tried to imitate was the miracle. And they never got to the point behind the miracle, which is the connection and the proclamation of God. If you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us this morning in the Bible app. It's a free resource that we use every week, and one of the features within the Bible app is called Events, and there you can either enable your locations or write in Lakeside Community Church Algoma, and you can follow along with us right there on your device. If you have a traditional Bible with you this morning, we are in the New Testament book of Acts. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels, and actually Luke, who under the guidance of the Holy Spirit wrote the the Gospel of Luke, he also wrote the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 19. If you're joining us via the stream this morning, thanks so much for joining us. My name is Brian, and I'm part of the team here at Lakeside, and the verses will be available for you on the screen below as we continue our look at the early church spreading the hope of Jesus and all that happened this morning, looking at Acts chapter 19, we start in verse 1 where we read these words. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. So let's just stop right there, right after verse 1, and let's understand the context of what's going on. We left off last week at the end of Acts chapter 18. At the end of Acts chapter 18, we're introduced to Apollos. Apollos loved God, but he didn't have all of the understanding of following Jesus and Priscilla and Aquila. They pulled Apollos aside and they gave him a more complete understanding of what it means to live your life following after Jesus. That's what we saw as Acts chapter 18 closed. And while that is going on in Corinth, Paul is now passing through and he arrives at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. So Paul has been going region to region and place to place, sharing the hope of Jesus, telling people that will listen about the hope that they can find through a relationship with God that's available through his son, Jesus, who is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of prophecy that he came and he paid the price for our sins when he died on the cross. And three days later, he rose again, proving that he was the fulfillment and proving that we can have a restored and renewed relationship with God through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And that is the message that Paul is proclaiming all over the place. And here it's in Ephesus. That's the context for what we'll be looking at today. 
We go to verses 2 to 4. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So what the Apostle Paul's doing here is he is completing the gospel narrative. He's completing the gospel narrative to this group of people that he encounters in Ephesus. Remember, Acts is really a, a transition book. It's a book of transition. And sometimes people will ask me the question, what happened in the Old Testament? To people that loved and followed after God, how were they saved? And the way that the Old Testament saints were saved, the way that they went to heaven when they died, is the same way that we are saved, and the same way that we will go to heaven when we die, and that is they placed their faith and trust in Christ. The difference is, in the Old Testament, they looked forward to the coming Messiah, whereas we now look back. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to the Messiah who was to come. We now look back to the Messiah who came. It's still Jesus. They looked forward to the promise. We looked back. And here in this time of transition, Paul encounters people who love God and followed after God. They've heard the message of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was right on the scene as Jesus was emerging in his ministry. And the message of John the Baptist was repent and believe. The Savior is coming. And Jesus was that Savior. So now the Apostle Paul is going and he's filling in the gaps. And he's telling them, you've heard the message that a Savior is coming. The Savior has come. And his name was Jesus. And here is what he has done. And Paul asks them, do you have the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit indwells every person that follows after Christ. So that's what's going on in this unique period in the book of Acts, as the message of Christ and his sacrifice continues to be spread. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So what happens is these 12 men in Ephesus, they hear the message of Paul. They recognize that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. They hear how he has died for our sin once and for all. He rose again three days later, that he is the promised Messiah. They place their faith and trust in Jesus. They are then baptized, and that Paul lays his hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit indwells every single person that is a follower of Christ. And what happens? The Holy Spirit gives them supernatural spiritual gifts. And that is the same thing that the Holy Spirit does today. To every person that is a follower of God, the Holy Spirit lives within you. Every single person that has placed their faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells. That God resides within you. And one of the marks of that is he gives you a spiritual gift. And oftentimes... Those gifts will align closely with our natural talents and abilities, but not always, not always. And here we see that they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that they have been baptized, and now God is with them. And the same is true for all who place their faith and trust in Christ. 
that the Spirit of God literally comes and resides within us. And one of the marks of that is he gives us a gift that is to be used to further his glory. And that's what we see going on here. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So what's going on here? Where does Paul enter right off the bat? The synagogue. Why is that important? Well, we talked about it last week. Acts chapter 18, what we saw is Paul is at a place where he has been physically beaten. He's been, people have tried to kill him. He's been arrested multiple times. His character has been maligned. He stood trial. And he has gone from region to region to region, telling people about the hope of Jesus. And each time, he's faced persecution. Each time, there's been drama. And he arrives at the point, we saw it last week in Acts chapter 18, where he says, God, enough. I'll go to the Greeks. I'll go to the Gentiles. I am done with the Jews. And as we saw last week in Acts chapter 18, God said, oh, no, you're not. But what, what we see here is that when we are tired and we're frustrated and we're discouraged, that doesn't make you a bad Christian. It doesn't make you a bad follower of Jesus. It just makes you human. And we're all going to experience times of that where situations and circumstances are just way different than we thought they would be. And God's called us to something, and we're following through on what God's called us to, but it's exhausting, and it's discouraging. And the fact that we're human means we're going to have emotions, and we're going to have feelings. And that doesn't make us bad people. It doesn't make us bad Christians. It just means we're human. But notice what happens. God says, Paul, you're not, you're not done with the Jews. And here we are a chapter later, and we saw last week how God gave Paul a respite. But here we are a chapter later, and what is Paul doing? The very thing he vowed he was done doing. The problem isn't when we get frustrated and we want to quit and we're discouraged and we say, God, I'm done, and we try to step away. That's just humanity. The problem is when we stay in that place, when God says, you're not done. That's when the problem is. And Paul didn't stay there. And here we are a chapter later, and he enters the synagogue, which a chapter before he vowed he was done doing. And what happens? He proclaims the hope of Jesus. And people respond, some positively and some negatively. 
And so Paul retreats, and he chooses a different location where he's going to continue to proclaim the message, and he's going to continue to tell people about Jesus, but he's going to a different place where people will be more receptive to his ministry. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them. And the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So what's going on here? I have no idea. I can't explain this to you other than God is a supernatural God who can do supernatural things. And that's exactly what's going on here. So much so that God, through Paul, is doing the supernatural so that if a handkerchief or an apron brushes up against Paul, it is then taken to people who are sick and they are supernaturally healed. The only explanation for this is this is something that doesn't make any sense, but God is a supernatural God who can do the supernatural. And that is the only explanation for this. And why is God operating this way? Well, because God being able to do this is the only explanation for this that could possibly exist. That a handkerchief that was brushed up against someone can now heal someone else. That is only through the power of God. It makes no sense. And because it makes no sense, people have to ask the question, what is going on? And when you recognize that there is no rational explanation that you can formulate in your own mind for this, then you start to have to ask the question, how could this possibly happen? And then you start to go down the path where you can be exposed to the message of God. Because there is no other explanation for this. And that's what's going on. As God is doing the supernatural to draw people to himself. And some people see this. And some people respond by giving their lives to God. And some people see this. And they think to themselves, well, I'm a spiritual person. Spirituality is really high on my list. What if I take the elements of this without full understanding of it and incorporate it into who I am and what I do? And that's exactly what we see taking place here. Verses 13 and 14 again say, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. These seven sons are spiritual people. They're not followers of Jesus. They don't have an authentic, legitimate relationship with God. And we live in a day and an age of spirituality where nobody has any problem saying, I'm a spiritual person. And yet, it's not enough to be a spiritual person. 
And the reason why, we're about to discover. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. They try to say, hey, in the name of Jesus, I appeal to you. The problem is they didn't have a connection with God. They didn't understand the Jesus whose name they were throwing out. They weren't connected to. And so the spiritualists, they do this, and all of a sudden they get a response. They get a response from the demons. And the demons tell them, Jesus we are well aware of, and Paul we know. But who are you guys? And then all of a sudden, in a scene that that we can't really fully fathom, this one guy who's demon-possessed beats up the other seven individuals. And they leave the house naked and beaten. I guess the closest we would have in our society is if you've ever watched one of those police shows and you encounter somebody who's high on on multiple substances and they have, uh, I mean, freak-like strength and it takes a number of officers to to subdue that person. Maybe you've seen some of those. Maybe you've been at, at some of those calls. I don't know. But but really put put into your mind exactly what's going on here. And once again, Luke, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he, he pulls back the curtain for us and reminds us that there is a very real unseen spiritual realm that we don't think about all the time because it can't be seen, but it's very real. And what's going on in this unseen spiritual realm is here is this individual. He is demon-possessed. The spiritualists, they try to encounter him. They throw out the name of Jesus. And the demons say, hey, we recognize Jesus and we recognize Paul, but who are you? And the reason I'm camping out on this, one is because it's, it's a fascinating account of what transpired. But secondly, is just because we don't think all the time about the unseen spiritual realm that that surrounds us it is very real and there are dark forces at work in the world around us but notice the response jesus i know and paul i know and as people that love and follow after god that have placed our faith and trust in christ Yes, there are dark forces all around us, but we don't have to live in fear. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, indwells us. Greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. And we don't have to walk in fear because nothing can happen to us outside of God's will and God's plan for our lives. And there are dark forces at work in our world, in our society, and they are around us. But if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, then Jesus I know, and Paul I know, and you they know. And the seal of God is on your life, and the Spirit is within you. And you don't have to live a life in fear. 
because God is in control. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. People heard about this naturally. They heard about this. And what happens? The name of Christ is lifted high, and he's held in high regard. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So we see the fallout from this. It continues to happen. The people who were followers of God, they recognized areas in their own lives that didn't honor God. And they turned away from that. And they turned away from that at great personal cost. But they wanted to honor God in every area of their lives. And now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he made himself stay in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So Paul journeys to Asia, and what happens? Back in Ephesus, there continues to be tensions that are rising. Why? Well, we're told. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So what's going on here? Well, as the message of Christ is taken from town to town and region to region, more and more people are discovering the hope that's available through a personal relationship with God through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. And they're placing their faith and trust in Him. And as the message of Christ continues to spread, that is a direct threat to people worshiping idols. Because people can have a relationship with the true God. Now that sounds great on the surface. Unless you make your living by making idols. And then all of a sudden you recognize this is going to impact our bottom line. Now if we've learned anything from our culture and from our society. It's this. People don't feel sorry for the wealthy. So the wealthy can't just go out to everyone and say, hey, this is going to be bad for business if people find a relationship with Jesus. It's really going to hurt our bottom line. Nobody's going to care. But what they discover is that if we can get people emotional, then they're going to care. And so the people who made all of their money from making idols went to people and said, hey, 
Can you believe that this group, this group wants to destroy everything that we hold sacred? This group wants to mock and ridicule our gods? What they really cared about was their money. But they camouflaged their true concern because they recognized that that would be the method that would get them the result that they ultimately desired. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So there is Paul, and he sees this scene unfolding. He sees everything that is going on, and he wants to run in right to where the trouble is. And that's what great leadership looks like, that he sees the people that have that spent their time with him, and he sees that they're in trouble, and he sees that they're being threatened, and he says, I want to run in. I don't want to just sit by idly and watch something potentially bad happen to them. I want to be right there. That is what great leadership looks like. And you know what he did? He didn't run in. Because people stopped him. He wanted to go in, but people around him said, you can't go in. And that's what great leadership looks like. That you put people around you that are willing to tell you the things you don't always want to hear, but who recognize that you're emotionally charged. That you've got tunnel vision a little bit and you need to think about other things as well. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This, is a, this scene is pandemonium. And notice what's going on. Most of them... Have no idea why they're there. We live in an age of outrage. And as people that love and follow Jesus, we've got to be on guard. Because there are groups and there are people from both sides of the political spectrum. And outrage is big business for them. And it lines their bottom line. They make a lot of money. They just can't come out and say that. And so they've got to distract. They've got to say, can you believe this? Can you believe this group is saying this? Can you believe this group is trying to do this? And they work constantly to to whip people into a frenzy. 
as people that love and follow Jesus, we've got to be on guard. Because what we see here is this crowd, is they are worked up. And most of them don't even know why. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. A town clerk who's essentially a mayor slash kind of a judge, he shows up and notice what he does. He makes an appeal. And he makes an appeal to something that is theologically incorrect. Verse 35, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? He appeals to the wrong mindset. He appeals to something that isn't true. But it's widely accepted. Notice how God uses that wrong mindset to still accomplish things for his glory. We live in a society, we live in a world that is a, a challenge for a lot of people. A lot of people that love and follow Jesus, especially people that tend to be a little bit older who remember things way differently in culture and society. And without question, we live in a post-Christian society, and you can argue and you can debate how really Christian our society ever really was, and that's a conversation for another day. But without question, now we live in a post-Christian society, and, and for some people it's really challenging. Because you remember things differently. You remember society with different values. And you remember society that, that had a different outlook on things. And if you find yourself there, I just want to encourage you, don't lose hope. God is still in control. And none of what's going on catches God by surprise. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. God has a plan, and he can use the wrong conclusions of our society to still bring about his purposes and still accomplish what he wants accomplished. It may seem dark, it may seem bleak, but we need to remember that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world.
God, I pray that we would be people who live with a confidence a commitment to you that we wouldn't be discouraged by things that happen that we don't fully understand but we would be reminded that you are in control and so I pray God that we would do our best to point people to you to live lives of hope, to model your love. I pray, God, that we would be people that are committed to living as you've called us to live, and loving as you've called us to love. God, I pray that when times of discouragement come, that you would encourage us. And I pray, God, that you would use this place, that you would use this church, that you would use us to proclaim the hope to a world that would reject you, to a world that would put great value and increasing value on being spiritual but not understanding how to connect with God and I pray God that you would position us as people and as a ministry lift high the name of Jesus and see you work in a powerful way for your glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.